Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. So glad you're here today. Uh, my name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor here. And uh, today we're continuing our series called Relational Vampires, how to deal with those people who suck the life out of you, which is probably the best subheading on any series we've ever done here. Um, this is real, right? I mean, I have a seven-year-old little girl a couple weeks ago. Um, if you've ever met my little seven-year-old girl, you'll know that there's this thing that stands out about her. Every day is the best day ever, okay? It is really her life philosophy. Every day is the best day ever. And it is genuinely a joy in my life because it's really hard to have a bad day when that's what you come home to. We went on a Valentine's date this, uh, this Thursday night, and um, she'd been telling all her friends all day, I'm going on a daddy-daughter date. And so we go, and it's like Panera, Five Below, and Orange Leaf, all her favorite places. She picks, okay, because it's her night. And, um, and she gets home, and she's like, Mommy, it was the best Valentine's Day ever, you know? And it's like, you just want to be happy when you're around that. And um, and I get the privilege of dropping her off every morning at school. It's like our little time. And, you know, I pray for her and for her day and whatever she's kind of getting ready to step into um, as I send her off. And I noticed this one morning I was dropping her off, and she was just, like, crying and saying, Daddy, I don't want to go, And which is not normally her. She's the kid who actually is really sad when school break happens, I, and which is really strange. Right? I mean, she this past week, she was crying because she didn't have school on Monday. And so, you know, this child not wanting to go into school that day was kind of strange. And I said, babe, it's going to be a good day. You know, mom's going to pick you up. It's going to be awesome. And, um, and she got out and she, like, closed the door and she had this, like, really sad puppy dog face as she was walking into the school. And I went to drive off and I called my wife and I was like, I don't know what to do. I feel so conflicted. I don't, I've never seen her like this. And I feel like I should maybe go back, but I don't want to be the weird parent, you know? And I feel like it's probably not good to, like, um, I don't know, be caught peeking in the window of her classroom. That's probably not the best, like, response. And I don't know what to do. And my wife is so wise. She was like, you know, you're probably not going to regret going back, but you probably will regret if you don't. And I was like, that's really good. And so my wife is so much smarter than I am. And so I went back. And I walk in to the to the desk, and I'm about to launch into this explanation where I'm trying not to look like a weird, like, hovering parent, but simultaneously, I know my daughter, and this is not normal. And there, right beside the desk, is the nurse's office, and I see my daughter in the nurse's office. And I'm like, sweetie? And she's like, daddy? What are you doing here? And I'm like, well, what are you doing here? And um, the nurse is like, oh, she has a boo-boo on her finger. I'm like, that girl does not have a boo-boo on her finger. And so I said, can I come in? And so I walk in and pick her up and put her on my lap. And I'm like, sweetie, what's wrong? She's like, I have a boo-boo on my finger. And I'm like, maybe that's skin. That's not a boo-boo. I said, what's really going on? And I, I don't know, just something kind of bubbled up. I was like, is there someone that you don't want to see? And she just started crying. And there was this girl that's starting to be mean to her, who says things when she sees her and who excludes her and has kind of started to target our daughter. And she just starts kind of like, that starts to fly out. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm holding my daughter, trying to engage and talk with her. 
And the reality is, is that relational vampires is something that all of us have experienced. And I'm sitting here having this conversation with my seven-year-old about the reality of for the rest of her life, those people are going to be present. Because it's, it's not like they just stay in elementary school. They get older. And those relational vampires start to get driver's license. And then they pick on you in middle school and high school. And they go off to college. And then they become adults. And then they become your boss or your coworker, And then some of you marry them. And now all of us know what it's like to deal with relational vampires. Those people who have an ability just to drain it out of you or to even take it to a next level and actually be destructive in your life too. And those people are the reasons that we leave jobs. Those people are the reason we switch schools, that we stop playing a certain sport. They're the reason that we stop engaging with certain social media channels. And they're the reason some of us even leave our marriage. Relational vampires are real. And they're far more destructive and dangerous and scary than the real vampires who can be kept away pretty easily with garlic necklaces and wooden stakes, right? Those are easier to defeat. And so how do you defeat, how do you deal with relational vampires? And that's kind of what my task is today. That through this series, we have attention. We want to give you examples of what relational vampires could look like. Last week, Jason kind of unpacked that with anger. What does it look like to deal with angry people? But we can't sample enough relational vampires to really give you kind of a game plan. And so to this morning, I want to give you a game plan. Because the reality is, is that relational vampires are not something new. They didn't come into existence in the 21st century or the 20th century when you and I were in school. They've been around since the beginning. In fact, the early church was constantly under threat from these kind of people. These draining, destructive, damaging people. In the early church, even if you're here today or you're engaging with us online and you're not even sure if you believe in Christianity, the early church is a great case study because these people were constantly under pressure. They were under pressure from government officials. They were in danger of losing their jobs. They were in danger of losing their families. And sometimes they were even in danger of losing their lives, all because of the beliefs that they had. They lived under the constant strain of relational vampires. And so I want to take you to a section of a letter written to one of these early churches. And in this letter, in this unpacking of this section, what we find is a way to deal with those difficult and draining people. And that we discover an answer to the problem, a problem that my seven-year-old is currently walking through. And that surely some of us are walking through too, on how to navigate with having the right posture, and the right practices to deal with them regularly. And so this section of letter um, is already preloaded for you in the Encounter Church app. We created a free app for you if you're new here. You can download it at encounterchurch.com forward slash app. And you'll find in the message notes sections that this passage is already preloaded. If not, it'll be on the screen behind us. It's a really short section. It was written by one of the most famous missionary, preacher, teacher, letter writers in the early church. He's responsible for writing a bulk of the New Testament letters. He's the one who's responsible for, uh, for starting and founding most of the early churches. 
because every church starts, and Paul was one of those guys who was responsible for starting a lot of them. And after he would start them, he would move on and start another one, but he would keep in contact with them through the most common form of communication of the day, which was letter writing. They didn't have Twitter or Facebook. There was no messaging. Uh, there wasn't even uh, a complete development of a postal service like what we would know of it. And so Paul would typically write a les- letter, and, that, and then he would send it through uh, someone that both that church and that he knew that was a trusted individual that could carry the letter for him. And so he carries this letter to a church that he's never met, a church that started meeting in Rome that was growing under essentially the center of the world. Rome at the time was one of the largest metropolitan cities in the world. It was uh, over a million plus people in that region. And, and here's Paul beginning to give them direction on how to start and form this thing called the church. And so Paul writes the letter to the church in Rome, and we call that letter today Romans. And in chapter 12, after he spent a bulk of the letter, because 1 through 11 is probably one of the most profound theological kind of explanations for the message of Christianity. And so he's making sure that they understand what does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to make you a Christian? Because he recognizes that for some people they could be confused and they think that being Christian just means that you grow up in a household where Christianity is the, the common family belief. And he's like, no, that's not what makes you a Christian. A Christian is a choice that you make in direct response to the teaching that I'm outlining here around centrally who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. And so he spends 1 through 11, and at the beginning of 12, he transitions from explanation to dealing with some of their challenges and talking about what does this look like practically. So at 12, verse 14, he goes into this section knowing the pressures that they're dealing with. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He writes that to them, knowing that they're in the midst of dealing with evil. They're in the presence of struggle and strife. And he begins with the first section outlining for them what would have been very radical. He, he begins to unpack for them a posture that's vastly different than the posture that, that even you and I would typically find when we deal with difficult people. When we encounter difficult people, the default, right, the default is to oversimplify who they are. We strip away kind of all the the good that they have, and we start to take them to the extreme, and we begin to dehumanize them and then demonize them. They're idiots. They're stupid. They're losers. They don't, you know, we just start to categorize them and label them. 
And by the time we're finished, they're no longer people like you and I. They're a position, they're a political party, they're a co-worker that, that has no clue. Because that's the default. Our default is to respond and dehumanize. We want to lash out. We want to repay evil for evil. We want to hit punch for punch. And Paul knows that that's the default position. But he's just unpacked for 11 chapters what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be transformed from the inside out and how there is something fundamentally different about you, that you're no longer operating on this default. You have a new operating system. It's like when you have an electronic device and they push out an update. It's all of a sudden your device is able to do things it was never able to do before. Why? Because even though the physical piece has stayed the same, there's new software running under that. And Paul recognizes that the heart of the Christian faith is that our old operating system, that when when we trust that Jesus is God and when we turn to that in faith, what happens is a new operating system gets downloaded inside of us. And our default tendencies are no longer our default tendencies. He's like, look, you've been changed. You have a new operating system underneath the surface. Now the new operating system is driven by something completely different. And what does he tell them to do? He says, mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, right? Don't be conceited. He's unpacking this new operating system that's marked by generosity, that's marked by empathy, and marked by humility. Not demonizing and arrogance and punch-for-punch response. That we're to be people who understand and seek to understand their position. It doesn't mean we agree with them, but it means that we try to understand where they're coming from. And that instead of airing our grievances or lashing out and starting a war, that we are generous, that that's our posture, is that we come with humility. Because when you come with humility and empathy, oftentimes you realize that, as I've discovered in my life, that sometimes I play an unintentional role in creating my enemies. I say things that get taken the wrong way because I didn't think about how it could land on their ears. And because of the way I responded, because of the way I minimized what was said to me, I unintentionally create an enemy. I unintentionally create someone who doesn't like me. And sometimes it has nothing to do with you and what you've done, but empathy would have at least made you aware of your role so that you could have apologized. I saw this play out actually a couple weeks ago on Twitter, which was kind of quite surprising, to be honest, because Twitter is normally where you see the default playing out. And it started off that way. You have a, a famous, semi-famous um, actor um, known as Peyton Oswalt. He's been in a couple movies, and um, I think he's in the television show right now, AP Biology. And um, he made a politically charged statement, and someone from the other uh, side of the aisle lashed out on Twitter and started kind of harassing him. And Oswalt's a communi- uh, is a comedian, so he kind of is responding back in humor. And then he does something. He stops and clicks on the profile of Michael, who's been interacting with him. And he noticed that Michael had a link to a GoFundMe page to help raise money for his medical expenses. Medical expenses that he had 
kind of started to collect after falling into a coma and going into a septic response, and his organs started to fail. And so here he is, he's discharged, he's, he's vastly unemployed, uh, underemployed, and he can't handle the weight of the crushing medical debt. And so he has a GoFundMe page. And here's what Peyton writes. He says, oh man, this dude just attacked me on Twitter and I joked back, but then I looked at his tam- timeline. He's in a lot of trouble health-wise. You know what, I'd be angry too. He's been dealt some tough cards. How about let's deal him some good ones? Click and donate, just like I'm about to. Oswald went on to his website and donated $2,000 of his own money to help Michael. And then his followers started doing the same thing. And shortly after that, um, Michael had surpassed his GoFundMe goal and was no longer living under the crushing weight of his debt. I think what Oswald was demonstrating for us is exactly what Paul is advocating for us to do. To come with a posture of generosity, empathy, and humility. Of being willing to step into their shoes and apologize even for the perceived wrongs. You notice in verse 17, he says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Sometimes being wrong is not being wrong. It's just that you were wrong in their eyes. And the humility to recognize that, like, okay, I wasn't really wrong, but in their eyes, they took it that way. I mean, just that simple application can transform your marriage. Because what I find when I sit down with couples is oftentimes this thing plays out. Both are convinced they're right. But you know the challenge is, have you ever tried to describe what it feels like to be wrong? If you, if you, if you were to sit, I won't make you do this, and call out what does it feel like to be wrong? What you would describe, most likely, is you would describe what it's like to feel like when you realize you're wrong. You'd say, oh, I feel bad, or I felt like an idiot, or, you know, I felt ashamed, or you'd kind of give all these descriptors, but you would be describing how you feel when you realize you're wrong. If you were to describe what it really feels like to be wrong, it feels exactly the same as it feels like to be right. Because until you realize you're wrong, you are absolutely convinced you're right. I'm always right. I don't know if you share that similarity. I'm always right in my head. When I have an argument, it's the best argument ever. And I usually feel very confident until someone pokes my little bubble and it pops. And then I realize I was wrong. And this is what Paul's trying to prevent. He's like, you've got to be willing to understand even how they see what you're doing. And be willing to apologize and say, look, I'm really sorry. I, you know what? I recognize I've been sitting here and I've been thinking about your perspective. And I realized that the way I responded, that you could have easily had taken or seen it as, as me making a jab towards you or a ridicule towards you or me picking on you. I want to say I'm sorry for that. I sincerely did not intend it to be that way, but I recognize it landed that way. Will you forgive me? I'm sorry. I have to do that so often with a seven-year-old little emotional girl. It is almost an autoplay for me because she's teaching me every single day. She sees the world so radically different. And that part of loving and leading and engaging with people is not just understanding how you see the world, but is engaging them in the way that they see the world too. 
But with that generosity, with that empathy and humility, we set ourselves up to have the right posture that puts us in position to make the right response, which is what Paul continues with, with verse 17, where he says, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul's now starting the transition. He's like, look, I want to I focus on how we respond. Because with the right posture, we're in position to rightly respond. Because the right way of responding is not our default way of responding, right? Growing up, the default way is to fight, flight, fold, or freeze. Or stab in the back when they're not there. All of us are really confident, not when they're face-to-face, but for us brothers and sisters who are very good at passive-aggressive, we know when they walk away, we have really good, good things to say to them that if they just stayed, we could have said it to their face, but they're not here, so we're going to call our sister and tell her, or we're going to tell our coworker, because that's what I would have said had they stayed, right? That's our default. And Paul's like, no, no, no. You have a new operating system that's been downloaded. You have a new way, a new posture, and new practices. Which is why as he's walking through from 17 to 21, he's advocating premeditated benevolence. Which is a really interesting idea, right? Premeditated benevolence. Not rumination. Rumination is playing the conversation in your mind. It's replaying all the dumb things that they did and the dumb things that they said to you and just chewing on it. And you find yourself getting angrier and angrier. Your, your boss, how dare they say that to you in front of your coworkers. And it's just that boss conversation just plays and amplifies and amplifies. And you get home and it's still with you. Their words are still cutting deep. That's the default way. He's like, no, no, no. Premeditated benevolence, not premeditated murder which might sometimes slip into our mind too. Premeditated benevolence, he's saying, look, there's a response that, and a responsibility that you have. He says twice, as far as it depends on you, if it is at all possible. So the starting point of our response is our shoulders, our responsibility to what we can do in the situation. Because I, I'm watching this play out, like I said, with Ella and one of the things that's frustrating when you deal with a relational vampire is you feel like you don't have the power anymore. They're the ones draining. They're the ones hurting. They're the ones driving you insane. And one of the things that you feel like you lose in those moments is you feel like you lose control. And Paul is doing this very powerful jujitsu move that he learned from Jesus. You see, Jesus had taught his disciples in one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 through 7. He, he's speaking to a group of people who are living in a nation occupied by the Roman government. And the Roman government had, had laws in place. One of those laws were if you were a Roman soldier and you encountered a Jewish boy, girl, man, or woman, you could demand that they carry your bag for a mile. It was Roman law. I don't care where you're headed, what you're doing, no matter how important, whatever it was that you were in the process, if a Roman soldier came up to you, he could hand you his bag and say, carry this for the next mile. It was the law. And as naturally as you can imagine, that made the Jewish people angry and frustrated and demoralized. So what does Jesus do? In a stroke of genius, he says, if someone forces you to carry a bag a mile, Carry it a second mile. 
which seems really simple, but when you think about it, Jesus was doing this magnificent chess-level strategic move. See, the first mile, they're making you. The second mile, you take the power back. If they can force you to do something for one mile, and then you walk away, then you were just had. But when they cross that mile marker and they know they can't legally make you do it anymore, and they're like, okay, give me my bag back. And you're like, no, no, no. It's my pleasure. Let me carry it another mile for you. And now they have to walk with you the second mile. And every step that you take, you take back the power they tried to have over you. It's brilliant. In fact, so brilliant that it inspires Martin Luther King Jr. and his associates in the middle of the height of the civil rights movement when they're stepping into Alabama and some of the most volatile environments in the midst of the civil rights movement. They're moving into communities that the leaders were just waiting on a moment to take a jab or a punch at King and his followers. And so what was the civil rights movement? So King and his associates are holding private meetings. They're producing comic books with illustrations. And they train thousands of residents of Alabama. They bring them in. They simulate, when they're doing the bus boycott, they simulate riding on the bus and being harassed. They would bring them in, and the leaders would role play with them. They would name call people as they were sitting. They would spit on them. They would throw gum in their hair. They would flick cigarette ashes. They would do everything that these people would experience in the midst of trying to take these bold steps towards freedom and push up against one of our nation's darkest evils. And he's coaching them. He's teaching them how to deal with milk and ketchup and mustard being poured out on them as they sit at the countertops. And what's happening is the followers were being coached not just how to take the evil, but how to have premeditated benevolent responses to the evil. And the, the photos and the, the news reports documenting these moments in our nation's history, comments on the the power and the kindness and the dignity of these people who could be ridiculed and yet respond in kindness because it would take away the power of the oppressor. And it eventually broke the backs of those leaders and our nation to come to terms with one of our darkest sins. And where does he learn this? He learns it from Jesus. When Jesus says, go walk another mile. Gandhi makes it famous in India, but where's Gandhi? Gandhi's not inventing non-violent response. He's copying Jesus. Because this is what Jesus is teaching. There is a power in premeditated benevolence. And so what do you do? Well, in premeditated benevolence, when you're dealing with these difficult, draining people, you channel your energy from dreading the action, the interaction, that moment, to channeling your energy into deciding beforehand your reaction. You plan ahead how you will respond. That sounds simple, but I am telling you, it is powerful. Because what happens when you don't plan is you go and you say something stupid, or you fold, or you freeze, or you shut down. I, I was bullied growing up, and so I know intimately what it's like to be cornered and picked on and not know what to say. All your best lines always come after they leave. 
And so when you decide beforehand how you're going to respond, when the moment happens, you know what to say. I mean, this is at the heart of police, firefighters, military training. They learn how to respond to the moments that could happen so that they don't have to think about what to do when they're in that moment. Because that's not the moment you want to try to figure it out. You want to already know before you go into the burning building or before you respond to the domestic violence call. You want to have a plan. And so you want to go ahead and decide ahead of time what you're going to do. But when you do that, you're plotting good. He says, if he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him water. You want to plot good for them. You want to prepare and scheme so that you demonstrate a power that they don't have. You respond in love and in goodness. And then, not only do you do that, you add this other element when you're not in front of them that you're praying for them. You're praying that God would bless them. You're praying God's goodness for them. You're praying that God would change their heart, that he would bring healing in those areas that are clearly broken and empty in their life that causes them to have such a desperate insecurity that they have to lash out in a public meeting and make other people feel small because they have such a desire to feel big and they're not. Because why? You're starting to empathize. And so now you start to feel more pity than, than outrage. Like, man, how sad must you have to be in life to, the only way that you can feel big is to make sure you rip down everyone around you to feel small. And that when we premeditate the good that we're going to do, we plot that good, and we're ready to do it, and we're praying for them, then you'll be surprised what happens in those moments is that you're prepared. Those relational vampires still show up, but they don't take the power and the frustration that they used to take. I mean, last night at dinner, this is exactly what I was doing with my daughter. We had finished eating, and I said, hey, let's talk about, and let's go ahead and practice. We role play. And so I get to be the mean girl, which is really fun. And Jenny was Ella. And, and so I'm like, Ella, I just want you to watch right now. And I want you to, because sometimes I role play with her because I'm coaching her. But this was one of those moments I know is so emotionally weighty, I want her to see it play out, and then we talk about it. So my wife was not ready because I go into my mean girl. I can channel a mean girl. And so I switch into my mean girl, and I was like, she had a, this, like, Chick-fil-A shirt on. And I was like, why you got a chicken on your shirt? That's so weird. And my wife's like, oh, oh, we doing this? I was like, I ain't playing. I'm a mean girl. And she responded back, and I came back with a quick jab again, and she said something. I came back with a quick jab. And Ella's, like, sitting there getting upset. She's like, I don't know how to respond to all these things, Daddy. I'm like, sweetie, that's kind of my point, is that if you get stuck into this, like, mud fight, you leave feeling dirty. So I want to teach you a move, babe. It's called the matador. And the matador, it's like, you know, these bullfighters, they'll, they'll have – these little red things, and they want to distract the bulls and just, whoo, they spin around. It's called the matador. So I was like, here's the matador. When you're walking down the, the hallway and that mean girl says something about you, like I think she, my daughter had a headband on, and she made a comment about how the unicorn horn headband, only babies wear that. And I was like, 
so here's the matador, sweetie. She says, why are you wearing that headband? Only babies wear unicorn headbands. Uh, you see, I'm telling you, I can channel it. And, um, and I was like, so here's how you respond. Here's the matador. That's so funny. That would have to be the biggest head baby ever. Thank you. And then walk off. Just laugh at the thought of a large head. And so I'm like, I was like, can you imagine how big a baby's head would have to be to wear that thing on their head? And she starts laughing. I was like, you just, just laugh at it. It's funny. Be like, that would be the biggest head baby ever. Thanks for making me laugh. Have a great day. And keep walking away. Don't get pulled in. Don't give the mean girl power. Premeditate beforehand what you're going to do. If you were to walk in our house, you will see us do this with Ella regularly because there is a power to this. There is something that happens. And that regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, this can make a difference for you as you deal with relational vampires. But what I love about this is the, is the confidence that Paul writes from this. You see, Paul has a confidence, not just in the response, not just in the strategy, but Paul has a confidence in knowing that God is in control, right? He tells them, look, don't take vengeance on them. God's in control. You don't have to go all vigilante. You can respond to them with premeditated goodness because you know ultimately they have to stand before him. And you can trust that justice will be done. But also, I think that same realization also brings that posture again of generosity, humility, and empathy. Because I'll be honest with you, I'm so glad God has not treated me the way I deserve to be treated. Because you don't know my brokenness. You don't know my past. You don't know what I have done. But I know. And I am so deeply grateful that God did not treat me the way I deserve to be treated. Now, I don't scream to heaven, God, that's not fair, because fairness means you get what you deserve. I don't want what I deserve. I want what I don't deserve, which is grace. And this is where I think ultimately Paul has this confidence that allows him, because Paul will lose his life in the very city that he writes this letter to. I've been in that prison I've stood in the small cramped space that some of the taller guys in this room could not even be in because the ceiling is barely a little over six feet. And it's dark. There's no lighting. It's humid because there's a bubbling brook right underneath this stone prison. And you just sit down there in darkness, even when it's bright outside. You just sit in darkness. And you depend on outsiders to bring you food and water. And Paul yet has a confidence enough to say this, knowing that he's eventually going to end up there. Why? Because Paul had seen the power of good and overcoming evil. It had transformed his life. It had radically shifted the way that he saw the world. Paul doesn't start off like Paul. He's kind of like Prince. He had a different name before. In fact, He's one of the most brilliant Jewish theologians. He, had he not become a Christian, he would have been one of the most famous Jewish scholars in Jewish history. He was already on that path. He was trilingual. He was brilliant. He was zealous. He was, he was someone who could get things done. 
And he was so zealous that he was the one driving the agenda to persecute Christians in the early church. He's the one who's standing, presiding over the first Christian killed for his faith. It's, it's him. And then he has this radical transformation. That operating system illustration, he experiences the hardware of his body staying the same, but the software of his soul downloading and being updated, and something different is going on inside of him now. And he responds in love and grace, and he starts to live his life differently. But Paul understands the power because the reason we know Paul today is he walks back to the early church, and he tries to say, look, I'm one of you now. And how would you respond if someone who had been trying to kill you and your family shows up and says, hey, JK, I'm a friend now? You would have had a lot of distrust. But what happens is that Paul meets a guy named Barnabas who believes that good can overcome evil, that good can transform a terrorist. Because when we read Paul, what you have to realize is that they would have seen Paul the way that many Americans saw Osama bin Laden after September 11th. When we read the New Testament letters, we take for granted it was written by Paul, that name. But they would have thought about him the way we would have thought about Osama bin Laden after the Twin Towers fell. It was that level of vitriol, that level of distrust, that level of anger. And yet, what does he see Barnabas do? He sees Barnabas overcome with good. He brings Paul in and he starts to mentor him. And that power of good, this response, continues to work behind the scenes. And the early church brings love and good even in the midst of overwhelming grief and persecution. Because when we stand and we do good, even to those relational vampires in our lives, we're not being a doormat. We're being a door holder to show them what love and grace really looks like. We're being a door holder to give them a glimpse of a power that says, no matter what you do to me, you can't rob my dignity. You can't affect and take away the core of who I am because when we, out of the grace that God has given to us, and like the Roman church discovered, that when we have the right posture and move and work with the right practices, we are in the best position to deal with draining and difficult people. Let's pray.